0: Is uh, June 12th, 2011. Our message today is going to be called Wedding Dresses and Shavot. Shavot is spelled S H A V U O T. I, I found it actually spelled incorrectly in several Bible dictionaries today, which that's interesting. The teachers of men, day don't know a feast that God Himself proclaimed, named, spelled, put in His Word. Uh, <laughs> Uh, You think maybe we need to get a little more familiar with the things of God? Because nobody misspells Pentecost and it's the same feast. (laughs) Wedding dresses and Shavuot. Turn with me to Leviticus 23. The reason that I bring this up is because uh, June 7th through 9th in Israel they were celebrating Shavuot and many believers around the world who keep up with the feast because they were a gift to mankind celebrated Shavuot. Shavuot uh, or Pentecost. Now, many of us call ourselves Pentecostals. We believe in a Pentecostal experience. Well, we need to understand, in essence, what Shavuot is. Uh, this month in Hebrew is called Sivan, S I V A N. Uh, and Shavuot occurred in Sivan 6 and 7. That corresponds to our June 7, 8, and 9. Uh, Are you in Leviticus 23? The Lord said to Moshe, Yahweh said to Moshe, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts. Whose feasts are they? The Lord's. They belong to the Lord. They're for the Lord. They're of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts. The appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as... Sacred assemblies. Now, King James people will see a word there that says convocations. Sometimes we see this word expressed in different ways, but all of it is one Hebrew word that is mikra. Mikra means sacred assembly, but it also means a rehearsal. If you're a Jewish bride and you're going to rehearse for your uh, wedding, The night before when the parents buy the rehearsal dinner and you do all of those things that we do, that is called a mikra. If Sharon is having a dance recital and the day before the dance recital they're going to get together to run through it, it is called a mikra. So the point here being that when God says there is a sacred assembly coming, the people knew in the original language that it had to do with rehearsing for something. That it was not getting together for no reason. It was not getting together to do the same vain things over and over that were simply rule upon rule. You were getting together as a feast, as a joy before the Lord, and you knew that it signified something that was coming. Something more. Did you hear the song today? Matthew wrote it. There is more. There is more. They knew innately that there was something more to it. In Numbers 8, you can put your finger in Leviticus... I'm sorry, go not to Numbers, but to Nehemiah. I want to give you a use of this word that might help you understand a little bit of what I'm saying. So walk right through Ezra, get to Nehemiah. We're going to be in the 8th chapter of Nehemiah. The very word that is translated sacred assemblies or convocation in Nehemiah, let's start with 8, 8. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning. Did you get that? What does that mean? They, they proclaimed the law out loud. They spoke what was written on a page. Making it what? Clear. 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 And what else? Giving it meaning. Giving it meaning. This means that the words were coming alive as they spoke. Making it clear and giving it meaning so that the people could understand what was being... Where it says red in the NIV there, the Hebrew is mikra. The truth is the NIV didn't know what to do with this. Because it literally means rehearsed. The people read it aloud. They made it clear. They gave it meaning so that the people would understand the point of what they were doing. That they were rehearsing for something more. Young's literal translation says they read it aloud, they gave it meaning so that the people would understand the convocation because they didn't know how to translate it. The point here being, every feast that is given, every pattern that the Lord shows Moses, everything that occurs was given so that the people could go through these things not as a ritual to bind them up, not as a chain around their neck, not as any of those things that you may have heard Western preachers in their ignorance proclaim. What it was for was to teach God's people precisely what they were rehearsing for. All of the ages are pointing to one thing. We can begin to find these in the Feast of Israel. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 16. Tell me when you're there. There's a section in your notes. Come on. Two of you are there. There's a section in your bulletin called notes. This is because I know good and well you will not be able to remember everything that I'm saying today. And yet it was planned by the Holy Ghost with purpose. It's important. So when something strikes you as important, I'm asking that you might write it down. That you might make a tablet of remembrance so that in the future generations, what was revealed to you by God might be yours. You might own it. It wouldn't go in one ear and out the other so that we're ever hearing and never doing. It might actually permeate your being and show up in your lifestyle. Because this is what Christianity is. It's when your beliefs are displayed in your everyday life actions. What would you think if you were the quarterback of a team and you called the huddle, JJ? And as we got in the huddle, you called the play. It was 46 right. And then we'd get out and nobody runs 46 right. So the next play, you call the huddle and now it's, it's 45 left. Right? But nobody runs that play. And then a pass play, but they don't run that play. At some point, you're going to quit calling the huddle because there's no point unless you can take an offering. And then you'll call the huddle week after week after week, after week, and just not care because your life has become about the offering, not the game. The King of the universe cares very much about our daily activities. And the reason we meet here is so that we can learn and repetitiously rehearse how we act daily. Are you with me, sentence? Okay, so in Deuteronomy 16... Some feasts are listed. To not read you the whole passage, I'd like to tell you, Passover is the first among the feasts. In Hebrew, that is Pesach. It occurs in a month that was not the first month of their year. How about that? Can you imagine that we're, oh, I don't know, say 50 days ago, and we just declared that the first of the year? Can you think of anything that would be more disruptive to business, to the IRS, to taxation, to our ordinary lives than to just pick a date in spring and say, this is now the first day of our year. Is there ever a point in your life at which, I don't know, you were in your 30s, 40s, 60s, teens, and you're traveling along and God said for you, this will be like starting again. I will give you a new start. We call that being born again. And a whole nation received the feast of Pesach And it was declared for them to be the first month of their year. It was like starting again, even though it was not the first month. The first month of the civil year in Israel is Tishri. And yet God said, which by the way, is their seventh month. God said, no, it's now Nisan. That will be your first month. Nisan is the first month of the Hebrew year and it starts with a party. Don't you love a God like that? He says, hey, let's kick off the year right. Let's throw a party. And what kind of party was it? We're going to celebrate when death passed us over. We're going to celebrate when we became a part of a blood covenant with God. We're going to celebrate that. We're going to celebrate the day in which... The gods of this world that had enslaved us were judged. The next feast that occurs after Nisan, it's 14th day, when we have the Pesach, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In Hebrew, this is Hag Hamatzot. Hamatzot. Means the unleavened bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a time in which your father would take everybody in the house, around by a candelabra called the menorah that symbolized the seven spirits of God. He would lead the entire family through the house, many times on their hands and knees, looking for leaven or breadcrumbs, anything that should not be in the house during this time. The mother would actually participate in this rehearsal by going ahead early and putting little pieces of leaven around the house for them to find. When they used the light of God's Spirit on their hands and knees to examine every corner of the crevice of their house and they identified things that didn't belong, the Father would go outside the house, put it in a brown bag, and light it on fire so that they could have a new start. When Jews had a diaspora all over Europe, meaning they were thrown out of Israel and scattered among the European countries of the world. This is what gave Europe the idea of a spring cleaning because God's own people had been rehearsing for something. A day in which they would receive a Passover lamb killed by Israel for Israel. The lamb belonged to Israel, was of Israel, and was slaughtered for Israel. Then, after receiving the Passover lamb, they're rehearsing for something. Going through every corner of their house. Illuminating it by the Spirit, the light of God's Spirit, and getting rid of anything that doesn't belong. If we've been rehearsing these things since we were very young, if this was a part of your culture, if this was your national culture, the way 4th of July is a part of your national culture... You might not have the idea that you could sit in church, call Jesus Lord, and nothing about your household ever change, because you had been to the rehearsal many times every year. After unleavened bread, we moved on to first fruits. This was on the seventeenth of Nisan. First fruits was going out to your place of produce, your fields, whatever it was that you were growing. And Israel always had something growing. Finding the very best representation of what was growing in that field. Putting a red sash around it and bringing it into the temple of God and waving it before him as an act of obedience. It was a promise. It was a down payment. It was a down payment saying, just like I'm bringing this one perfect sheaf in right now, I'll bring in the rest of the harvest." The people did this rehearsing for something. The day in which God would hold up a first fruits offering and say, this one perfect man, I'm showing you now, but the day will come when I will bring in the harvest of humanity in the very same way. See, just like in any rehearsal, there are two parties at work here. It's not just mankind that plays a role. In fact, we find that it was God Himself who became a man to play this role. Some 50 days after first fruits, 49, if you want to be very, very technical, we had another feast. We call this Pentecost, and everybody recognizes that word. No Jew ever called it Pentecost; they called it Shavuot. And in our calendar, it just happened. Shavuot means the feast of weeks, but it's known under some other names in the Scripture. In Numbers, it's called Yom Habikurim, the day of first fruits. In other words. The day in which we make good. That promise when we held up the waving of the first fruits. It is the day of harvest. It is also called a day of harvest in the Bible. But it's most commonly called Shavuot. It meant that there would be a day of reckoning. A day in which you promised something. And now a harvest was about to come in. You were rehearsing this every day in your personal life as you brought something before the Lord, believing that He would also meet your needs. He brought something before you, the man Jesus, so that we could see He was going to meet our needs, destroy death. Are you tracking with me this morning, church? These feasts all occurred in the first three months of the year. And the first three feasts occurred in the first month of the year then there would be a long break, a time period where you would wait, not quite sure because Israel operates on a lunar calendar, not knowing the exact number of days until Tishri, the seventh month, would come. You would be looking, waiting. Somebody had to agree. There had to be two or more witnesses that saw the new moon that knew that Tishri had come. And then when they heard it, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets would happen. This would be a blowing of the trumpet after a long period of silence when God's people were waiting. And in Rosh Hashanah, when the trumpet sounded, anybody want to guess how many times it sounded? Seven. Seven. You knew that the Day of Atonement was drawing near because on the 1st of Tishri, the trumpet would sound. It began what the Jews call the Days of awe. These are the times that you examine your life you look up because your redemption is drawing nigh, you know that in a single day soon there's going to be a reckoning between God and man. Nine days after the trumpet blows, we enter into Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement when all God's people would be put in right standing with God. Seven trumpets would blow over a period of ten days. The whole nation would contemplate their lives. And then in a single day, a lamb of Israel, killed by Israel, for Israel, would atone for Israel. This is how Romans eleven twenty six can say, all Israel will be saved. It's how Zechariah can say, a fountain will be opened in Jacob and the godlessness will be turned away from Jacob. They will look upon the one that they pierced and mourn in a single day. A nation would experience getting right with God. Each one of these things in the Bible are called a mikra, a rehearsal for a reality that is coming. It's a rehearsal for something that is surely going to come. We rehearse for weddings once. I was one time in, I think, 12 weddings and 14 months. Yeah, something like that. That was a lot of rehearsals. All the weddings were pretty similar. The pastor had his thing down. I can still quote it verbatim. After a while, I knew what to expect. So that if, even if this wedding script were written in another language and then reinterpreted into mine again, I would recognize it. This is what the Gospel is like for the Jewish people. This is what the book of Revelation is like. It is God's wedding language, His feast language, and it was written and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, but we are foreigners to it. And we have the wrong key in understanding it. Sometimes study what the key of David is. You might have some insight into that. After Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, on the tenth day of the seventh month, We enter into tabernacles. This is the 15th of Tishri to the 21st. It is called Sukkot. This is a time when the whole world celebrates the fact that God's people once dwelt in a desert waiting for their inheritance, but do so no longer. Come on with eyes to see. We once dwelt in tents of flesh. We once traversed this very difficult desert, but now have received the right standing with God, death no longer having a hold upon us. Glorified bodies. So the whole world dwells in tabernacles and celebrates that time period. Seven feasts in seven months, seven rehearsals spread out over a perfect period of time to teach God's people. I'm just curious. I know one family in here knew that it was Shavuot last week. Are there two families in here that knew it was Shavuot last week? Sure. A household. That's two. Do we have three? In a group that studies Hebraic roots. In a group that's got Jesus' Hebraic name written on our pulpit. In a group that knows what Talit is. Knows what Shofars are. That can quote some Hebrew prayers. Did we even notice this is the largest testament not to the fact that we're bad people, not to the fact that we're somehow misguided or misdirected, but that we are not of the culture of the Bible. We are foreigners to it and it to us. We are a Western people and this is an Eastern book. And if we want to understand it, there is only one way to understand it. That is in the culture that it was written in. We must resist all efforts to take this and make it more palatable to us by Americanizing it. And yet, that very basic truth has happened all around us. I'm not here to reform the church in a single day. I'm here to reform our lives starting today. Today we can take our stand and say no longer... Will I read something that is God's Word and then decide how I would and would not like to apply it as if it were optional? As if it were just wise advice. No longer will I hear the holy anointed Word of God and then go on like a man who has looked at his face in the mirror and then walked away forgetting what he looked like. Today can be our day that says, I rehearse then so that I can get it right now. Shavuot slipped by us all because we're preoccupied. Because we're busy. Isn't this the reason that we delay God's will in favor of our own? And yet that is what idolatry is. Isn't it saints? When we put our desires, our will, our plan before God's. Turn with me. You're in Deuteronomy 16. Let me read you this. Start in verse 9. Count all seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the feast of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. I want you to understand that the Lord has never asked something of His people that He did not demonstrate to His people ahead of time. There has never been a time that the Lord says, I have never done anything for you. I've never given anything to you. But I want you to give to me. He always asks of the people to respond. Love always flows downhill. It is demonstrated from a perfect Father above us. And then He says, if you're getting the message, if it's coming through loud and clear, I need you to respond by doing what I've demonstrated for you. Tell me this is not an effective method of teaching. Charlie once taught me to use... A uh, not a framing nail gun, but a finishing nail gun. We learned how to put together mitered joints. It would be a great thing if Charlie explained it, which he did. But I could walk away and him walk away from that very, very meeting believing that because I understood it, I was doing it. We didn't stop there. He handed me the finishing nail gun and asked me to demonstrate it. It was love, it was grace, it was mercy that showed me how and demonstrated it. It was obedience that allowed me to reciprocate it. Friends, we have so misunderstood grace and mercy that we have heresy on every corner, not understanding that there are limits to grace, not understanding in any way that a holy God requires holiness. We have men of God defending Christianity from the Bible all around us saying things like in the end love will win well what does it mean for love to win love is when righteousness is in right places and wickedness has been dealt with that's what love is we do not need to defend Christianity from the Bible Christianity should be defined by the Bible. And yet something as basic as that is being challenged in every church around us on a regular basis when we do what we like and refuse what we dislike. In proportion. Look at verse 11. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place He will choose as a dwelling place for His name. Friends, we do not get to choose. We do not get to decide because this church is close to my house. This is the one that I will attend. I'll drive across town because I like the way they cut my hair. It accents my facial features and hides my bald spot. I hope you ladies aren't dealing with that. I'll drive all the way across town for that. I'll make an appointment with the right person who will scrub the dead skin off of my feet. But I will attend church in wherever is the shortest distance from my house. And the shortest service. And the most entertaining. And the best programs for our kids. And, 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 and. The Lord God chooses a dwelling place for His name. Dwelling place. What an interesting concept that is. Check this out and rejoice before the Lord your God at the place He will choose as a dwelling for His name. You, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maid servants, the Levites in your towns, the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows living among you, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. Turn with me. Let's look at this word dwelling for just a moment. I won't keep you too terribly long on this subject, but you do need to know it. Look at Exodus 25. Are you already tired of turning? In Exodus 25, look at verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. There's two words in Hebrew that could say dwell or live. One is Shekan, that's usually translated dwell. The other is Yasab, that is live. It's an interesting thing because later in the book of Numbers, our God says, please don't. He doesn't say please, that's the King Eric translation. <laughs> he says, don't have bloodshed in the land, it pollutes the land. And when you shed blood there, the only one who can atone for the land is the one who shed blood there. This is the land where you, Yassab, live and I, Shekan, dwell. This is because in Hebrew there's a vast difference between these two words. To Yassab means it's a place that you reside. Like, you know, when I was a kid, I resided in Alabama and then Virginia and then Louisiana. No real attachment. It's just a place where you stay. But when you dwell, this word is 43 times in the word associated with God. When you dwell, it means to be permanently intertwined with. Our God wants to dwell with us, not reside with us. It's not enough for Him to be in proximity to you. It is not enough for Him to simply be in the area where you stay. He wants to be permanently intertwined to you in a sense of nearness. Now how might you say that in English? He wants to be intimate with you. This is how he can look at some who resided next to him for a very long time and say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. We sobbed together. We lived around each other. But we never shaken together. We were never really intertwined. Saints, there will be a great separation of sheep and goats on that day. They all look the same. They act virtually the same. In some sense, they can be used interchangeably as offerings the same. But some did what He told them to do. Showing that they were intertwined with Him. And His will was their will. And their will was His will. Because they had become one. And others simply heard Him speak. We're so accustomed to reading all of those parables and saying, oh yeah, well, the sheep are us. What you are is defined by what you do. We've never lived in a culture that has perverted this concept further from the truth. We teach that you are whatever you believe you are. That if a man says Jesus is Lord, but lives like Jesus is nothing to him, he is saved. That if you believe Jesus was raised from the dead and have right church membership, then you're assured in a place in the eternal kingdom. Even if you live like hell all the way to get there. This is not what the book teaches. It's not what was rehearsed. Obedience was required. All seven feasts, nothing in them was optional. All seven feasts had to be at appointed times. In specific places, done in specific ways. You know why? This showed he was in charge and his people were not. This showed that he was Lord and not some kind of Pokemon pocket god. Yeah, a lucky charm, if you like, sir. Earth me to Deuteronomy 16 16 y'all already upset with me? No. I just got back. I was kind of hoping you'd have some tolerance for me. Okay, good. Steve still loves me. Me too. You know how his people are. 1616. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place He will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles... No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Now, if you're beginning to get tense in your shoulders as we read that, and think, oh no, there's going to be a pitch for my checkbook here any moment. I want to tell you that it absolutely has everything to do with your finances, but that's not what we're speaking about today. Every single Israelite had to bring something to the Lord. Amen. And yet that was not the reality. What was that? It was the rehearsal. The reality is very similar to the rehearsal, but the two are not exactly the same. For instance, if Jennifer, come here, Jen. If Jennifer and I, I know how you love to be, I promised last night I was going to use you as an example in a sermon today, didn't I? Come on now, hurry down here. You gotta walk the aisle. You can almost hear Right said Fred singing right now, can't yeah. you? Come on now. Jennifer and I are going to rehearse, right? We're rehearsing for our wedding, which is going to be tomorrow. Fred, you got to pay for this all over again. <laughs> Tonight is Mom and Dad's birth, though. Y'all got the rehearsal dinner. So we're going to rehearse. And the pastor, Matthew, you're the pastor. Come stand here. The pastor says, Now I pronounce. That is what. And now I pronounce you man and wife. And I go in for the kiss. Does the pastor let me do that the day before? Of course not. Because some things are saved for the reality, right? The rehearsal is good. But what is the reality? Better. It's better. Specific days, specific times. It's easy, Jim. No man appears before the Lord empty-handed. We're going to come back to that. Would you you write that down for me? Would you put no person appears before the Lord empty handed? Because at the end of this message, I'm going to ask you what God has given you, what is in your hands. And I will not be talking about your checkbook and I will not be passing a plate, although that is obviously what this most definitely means in its strictest context. They didn't have checkbooks and visa cards. They had agriculture and they brought it before the Lord. But that's not what we're talking about today. I'd like to talk to you about some Jewish associations with Shavuot. Would you say that if we were going to learn about Passover, if we were going to learn about first fruits, if we were going to learn about unleavened bread, or we were going to learn about Shavuot Pentecost, that the right place to do it would be the people that had been rehearsing it for 1600 years? Uh, we probably should not go and ask Aristotle. What he thought about it, huh? No. We might probably should not go see if Homer had anything to say about it. No probably our our best sources were not all of Greek wisdom. Probably the people that God gave this to, huh? Yes. Would you like to know some things that they thought about Shavuot? what they did on Shavuot? Yes. I give you a hint. All of the apostles did these things. Every one of them. It's even in Peter's very first sermon. But before we get there, the first thing that they associated with Shavuot is a theophany. Now they wouldn't have used that word because that's one of those great preacher words. Theo meaning God, phoneme meaning appearance. This is a time in Israel's history that they believe God appeared in special ways. Are you struggling to make that connection? I know that I was the first time I heard it. It's a feast of harvest. It's uh, it's a feast of weeks, a certain number of weeks. How is this God appearing? How could that be their very first association with Him? Well, it comes from Exodus 19. In the first verse, it says, it was the third month when the people arrived at Sinai." What was the first month? What did God say in the middle of their year? Now is your first month of the year. What was it? Nisan. This is when Passover was, and he said, "On the fourteenth day at twilight, I want you to kill a Passover lamb, and then the feast of unleavened bread starts, which is the fifteenth of Nisan. And look, three days after that Sabbath, somewhere around the seventeenth of Nisan, I want you to have a feast of first fruits, and then count off seven weeks from that time. Seven times seven is forty-nine. Forty-nine days from the feast of first fruits, I want you." To hold the feast of Shavuot. Well, if it is the third month when Israel gets to the mountain at Sinai, if it was the fourteenth or fifteenth or seventeenth of Nisan, let's just say, for argument's sake, the middle of Nisan. Then we would move to the next month, the middle of Zev, or if you like the modern calendars, a year. How many days roughly would that be if we go from the middle of one month to the middle of another month? somewhere around 30 days, 28 days if you're a lunar calendar, right? And then we go to the third month of the year and we need to get another, how many days? 20 days out of it? To have 50 days total? We're in the middle of the third month and they're standing at Sinai. Jews believe that God met with them at the Feast of Shavuot. Now why would that be important at all to you New Testament believers? Because He didn't just do it once. He did it a second time. There is a reason that the Holy Spirit was poured out on what in the deep south we call Pentecost. Israel had a certain expectancy. They they did certain things. They read Ezekiel 1 and 2 where God appeared in this vision to Ezekiel. They read the third chapter of Habakkuk. you remember? Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. I saw Him approaching from Timnah. From the north He crossed the mountains of Seir. Y'all remember that? I know you all have Habakkuk remembered. I mean, memorized. They read those things and they had a certain expectancy. The last time, the first time we ever did this rehearsal, they said, God descended upon Mount Sinai in a canopy. a hopa. He spoke audibly to an entire nation. He gave a revelation of Himself that fundamentally changed the world that happened at Shavuot. And we don't even know it because it's not our culture. But we can learn from it by studying the culture. So every Jew, every single time that we got to Pentecost, was hoping that God would give a revelation to the world of His character, of His nature, that would fundamentally change it. And they had to go to Jerusalem to experience it. Because they knew that it was the center of the world as far as God was concerned. Come on now, is that exciting to you at all? Amen. So they read some things. The first that they read was Ezekiel. The second that they read was Habakkuk. The third thing that they read was really their second great expectation. They read the book of Ruth. Because of all the biblical books, the book of Ruth had the most stuff in it about a harvest. But what do we know about the book of Ruth? It had to do with the <laughs> ingathering. It had to do with taking people, a little more bias, and grafting her into the people of God and allowing her to participate in their destiny. Every single Pentecost, every single Shavuot, they expected a theophany. And they read the book of Ruth. Now, I'm just curious in Acts 2. When they were praying in the upper room, 120 in all, and they were praying, what do you think they were praying for? What had Jesus told them to pray for? The baptism that my Father promised. Amen. This would be something that would fundamentally change the world as we know it. It would be like the giving of the law at Sinai when a whole nation heard the Word of God at one time. This would be the fuel for the fire of the church age. And they were reading the book of Ruth about people of other nations being grafted into what God was doing. What an amazing thing. You remember that on the day of Pentecost, there were men from every nation, God-fearing men, and they all heard the people speaking. Although they were speaking in other tongues, the miracle was in the hearing. They all understood as if it was their own language. Not much different. Then God speaking from a mountain and it sounded like thunder and every single person there understanding He was articulating and enunciating every word of the divine command. The third thing that they associated with Shavuot was the death of their favorite king. Who was the favorite? The darling of Israel. Israel's singer. David. David. (laughs) The Israeli parents have a strange nickname for their children. When they have a child named David. David is one of the most beloved names in Israel. It is the finest name you can give an Israeli child. They have a nickname for him. Shows you how foreign they are to us and we are to them. The nickname for David in Israel is Doo-Doo. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't translate, does it? I met a bus driver and he said his name was Shlomo, which made me giggle. Then he introduced me to a money changer named Doo I sat there and scratched my head. These are two of the prettiest names in all of Israel. The mighty King David and his son Solomon, and they were foreigners to me and me to them. But isn't this how our Theophanies are? When we come face to face with what is God, what was fundamentally designed to change the world, it is foreign to us. Does it mean to change or do we? So you walk into this church and you say, you know, some of this makes me uncomfortable. That pastor's awful pushy. (laughs) They seem to want us to participate. We could go somewhere else. You need to understand that when you encounter God, He fundamentally requires you to change. This is why He takes men from one nation and sends them to another. You would think that He'd pick your next door neighbor to tell you, but he's too much like you. He wants you to have to hear it from someone who is different than you and know that it requires you to change. Because it's only with humility that the kingdom of God operates. The proud cannot enter into it though the gates are open always. They are prevented by their own egos. Three Jewish associations. A theophany. A harvester graft in with the book of Ruth. And David, the king of Israel, the darling, the singer. In Acts 14, I'm sorry, Acts 13, the 36th verse, it says, When David had served God's own purpose in his generation, he died. What a thing to say about a man. He served his purpose to his generation. Then he died. You know, it's a tragedy when a man dies before that happens. But it is no tragedy when he dies after it happens. Every single Shavuot, Israel focused on a theophany that might change the world. They focused on a harvest that included the nations. They focused on a king who fulfilled His purpose, God's purpose in His generation. You go read the second chapter of Acts and tell me what Peter preached about. On Pentecost, did he not mention the Holy Ghost that changed the world? Did he not mention the men of all of the nations that God was making His appeal to, those who are near and those who are far? He did not mention David's tomb, which was in this very city. This is because this is what Jews think about at Shavuot. No different than you think about barbecue and fireworks at 4th of July, although that was never written as part of the holiday. It's just an American association. Would you expect a German to have the same association with the date on his calendar that corresponds to 4th of July? No. But then again, God did not pick Germany to instruct the world. He picked Israel. When He called them in the 19th chapter, He said, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a royal and holy nation. Now, we've listened to Peter and we've applied that to ourselves, but the question is, did we learn anything about the people that was originally given to? And have you become a nation independent of them? No. Into Paul makes it very clear. You're grafted in right alongside. So, Eric, what could I be preaching about today? If I told you that we were going to talk about Shavuot and wedding dresses... Where is the wedding dress? What did I ask you to write down? No man is to appear before the Lord empty handed. I promised you that we were not going to have you get out your checkbook this morning. My goal was not to fleece the sheep. It was not to pry pennies from your pocket. In fact, if they have to be pried, God won't accept them even if the church does. He's looking for a certain kind of heart. The one that says, I want to respond to you in a proportionate way to the way you've responded to me. You've touched every area of my life the same way that the sun touches every area of those flowers out there. You see weeds, I see flowers. (laughs) They're casting a certain shade upon my Ford. The sun illuminates every part of it. It contributes food to that just by way of it being in its presence. It contributes life. From 93 million miles away, it is imparting life to that flower. This is what being in God's presence is like. And it demands a response. That flower cannot stand in the sun's presence without reciprocating in some way. And you cannot stand in God's presence without reciprocating in some way. Turn with me to Ruth 1. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and baby Ruth. There. There. In Ruth 1, I'd like to just read you the 16th verse. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Ruth had experienced something under Naomi that although she experienced pain, that her husband died, that her sister-in-law's husband died, she knew innately that Naomi's people were destined for life. Even though they were in a land Surrounded by death. She said, please, don't separate me from you. Let me go with you. Let me stand next to you. I'll consider your people as though they were mine. There is no promise that Naomi's people would consider Ruth one of theirs. She didn't care. Today, the great questions of our theologians, you know, are we spiritual Jews and Messiah and all these things, understand that the heart of God's people The people who wanted to be grafted in to God's plan they didn't care whether God's people accepted them as nationals or not. They just wanted to be close. Did Rahab sit down and work out her citizenship before she immigrated? She just wanted to be a part of the blessing of God's people. This is the role of the Gentile church, to just want to stand next to Israel in the hope That their Messiah will have mercy upon us. He is their Passover lamb of Israel, killed by Israel, for Israel. It was his blood that polluted their land, it was his blood that atones for their land. We are the people that were not looking for God and were found by him. We are the ones who the wedding invitation did not go out to initially but because of some disobedience. We were the rabble that was included. Does that hurt your feelings? Paul said not many of you were of noble birth when you were called, but he was. Is it enough for you to just stand next to God's people, or must we usurp them in some way? Must we declare that our ways are the right ways? Must we rename their heroes? Must we Called their Messiah as if he were a Gentile God. There's a certain humility that must accompany our reception of the gospel. We're wild olive shoots being grafted into something that we were not naturally a part of. Do you like it when people come to this country and refuse to learn our language? No, no. Do you like it? And they sit in a rusted out El Camino and stare at a traffic sign in the middle of an intersection? You want people to follow our customs, don't you? Why is the Gentile church so stiff on Jewish custom? Ruth just wanted to stand near Naomi. Now watch the blessing that comes from this. Naomi gives her some advice. Let's pick up in the second chapter of Ruth. I know that 12 o'clock is knocking on the door. Please keep in mind, I didn't get started until about 15 after. I'm not going to keep you forever. But don't you want to know how the story ends? Yeah. 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 yeah, I don't want you to be empty-handed before the Lord. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. It's interesting. You could call Jesus a lot of things, but He's not our relative He's a relative to every Israelite that was ever born. But he's not a relative to us. Every Israelite that was ever born is of the house of Israel, of which Jesus is. He is a relative. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess, she's not being called the Jew, is she? She is just a Gentile who is hanging out with Jews. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Why on earth could Ruth go hang out in a field that was not hers and pick up gleanings? Because God Himself designed this culture. And in His law that defined their culture, He said when you pick grain, don't you go over it a second time. And when you pick grapes, don't you shake those bushes twice. You leave the corners of your field without having harvested them. And you leave anything you missed in the first pass because there will be aliens and there will be foreigners. And I care about them as much as I care about you. Israel's fields were first and foremost for Israel. But they were never for Israel alone. God always had His eye on the little widow from a foreign land. Because the same spirit that prophesied this morning and said you are not alone has been saying it to the whole world since the beginning of time. We've just had our fingers in our ears because we didn't want to go to someone else's fields. We wanted to eat from what we had planted. Pride and self-sufficiency. The Gospel will always break you down before it builds you up. And if it doesn't, you didn't encounter the Gospel. You were a pretty good old boy. You encountered the gospel and now you're an even better boy. You're deceived. You picked up on some southern something's gospel, but not on the gospel of God. The first gut-wrenching conclusion that you must come to is that in every way you're inclined wrongly. But the mercy of God is He will teach you and show you how to act rightly. He will fundamentally change who you are by ingesting His Word, by surrounding yourself with the culture that He designed. We begin to learn differently than our own nature. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz. You may think that you just happened to be here this morning. A young man came into our church Wednesday night and he said, I can't believe this. I was tired. I was ready to go on vacation. A couple of you were talking a lot at the same time in my ear. A lot. (laughs) And I'm trying to focus on this young man. He told me where he was from, but I couldn't hear because there was a lot of talking in my ear. Golly guys, if you love the Lord, if you love me, if you see me speaking with somebody that is brand new in the church, back up a foot. I shouldn't feel your breath on my face. Listen. He said, I cannot believe what just happened. I said, really, what? What's your name, man? Joshua. That's a great name. He said, I have been looking for a church that would teach me more about the Hebrew people. I have been reading about Muhammad Ali, who was the voice in Mike's illustration. He said, I knew that there had to be more worship like this worship you think he just happened to be here? No. Now maybe this morning he's saying goodbye somewhere else. I don't know. Maybe he was just blessed and he's going on and doing something good somewhere else. But I don't believe he just happened to be here any more than I think Ruth happened to be in the field of Boaz. There is a God in whose eyes you have found favor though you do not deserve it. And you have happened to be in the field of His kinsmen. Redeemer. His eyes upon you. And let's see what his eye is looking for. Just then, Boaz arrived, arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called that. That's a little different than the greetings I'm familiar with in the workplace. What's up? <laughs> the Lord be with you and the Lord bless you. This is because God designed this society. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? See, single man, it is not wrong to notice. <laughs> Whose young woman is that? Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, She is the Moabitess. It's funny, she's never being called an Israelite, is she? She's just hanging out with the Israelites. She's not a spiritual Israelite. She's not an Israelite. She's a Moabitess. But she's being treated just like an Israelite. It's an equal God. The foreman replied, She's a Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. Before we move on from this, you know, I mean, honestly, people all eat different amounts. No question about that. If you go with me, you might be shocked. <laughs> if you go with the gym, these days, there's not much to be eaten. We're on different ends of the spectrum. But is it conceivable to you even for a moment that Ruth the Moabitess had to work for the 12 hours of daylight just to get enough food to feed herself? What do we know from the rest of this book? Who who is she she providing for? Naomi. Naomi. Why? Naomi was old. She was advanced in years. Naomi allowed Ruth to hang out with her. So Ruth felt a compulsion to provide for Naomi. Are you beginning to understand Paul's fundraising practices for Jerusalem among the Gentile churches? He said, if you then have shared in their spiritual blessing, should you not share your material blessings with them? Y'all you are know, looking at me like you've never heard that Scripture. You know why? Because the only time you've ever heard it applied is for the pastor trying to get money out of you. For him. That is not how it was written. It was written to Gentile churches for support for Israel. Right? And in any case, she is working Not only for her benefit, but for Naomi's. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the young men are harvesting, and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. She came under his protection, she came under his provision. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the waters of life. Jars the men have filled. Sorry, I slipped. (laughs) And at this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that a foreigner noticed me? I'm sorry, noticed me a foreigner. Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Did Paul not say in Romans 7 that you had a husband that you died to and you no longer lived to him but to Christ? Since the death of your husband, what have you been busy doing? Uniting with God's people? Providing for them? Doing the works that God laid out for you? Or have you said, my husband's dead I want to be blessed, 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 blessed. I'll go where I can hear about more blessings. I'll buy books about how to get more blessings. I'll build bigger barns, anything to be more blessed. Because that's pretty well the American gospel. She was so happy to be considered one of God's people, she went out and worked on behalf of God's people. Where is your heart, saints? What is a blessing, by the way? Did you believe Jesus when He said it was more blessed to give than receive? If you did, has that belief made it into your actions? There was a time in this church when we had a potluck. I had to go restrain all the guys who were under 25. They would go run to get to the food in front of everyone else. They'd be the first at meetings. They'd eat all the food. be the first to leave with all the dishes still spread out everywhere. Our ways are not God's ways. Slowly we've turned that around. I'm very proud of the young men in this church today. Some have grown up in years and some have just grown up in behavior. The people of God, because they're included as people of God, are looking for ways to bless, not to receive. Empty-handed. I am going to get empty-handed, but I do want to read this. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you do not know, did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Is this because God is a big old bird? (laughs) See, in that great theophany, during that time at Sinai, the whole nation of Israel thought that they were standing under a hopa, A hopa that was made of the fringes of God's garment, the canopy of clouds. that He wrapped around Himself like a garment. And then He spoke wedding vows to them and they stood under His wings. Wings is a Jewish idiom or euphemism for the fringes on the Talit. They're called zitzit. And he said that she had come to take refuge under his wings. Now you know the rest of the story. How does she eventually web Boaz? He spreads the corner of his garment, his tally, over her so that she comes under his cover. This is a picture of Shalom. A man is standing under the covering that God has given him, and the woman has come to stand under the covering of the man. They were in right order with God. Did they do pretty good? Well, Boaz produced Obed, Obed produced Salmon, Salmon produced Jesse, and Jesse produced... I would say they did pretty good. She made it into the lineage of Christ. So what is this empty-handed business? If I don't want your money and we're talking about garments in some way, and we name the message Shavuot and wedding dresses, what would be the empty-handed business? Why don't we turn to the last book of the Bible? If you were living in the first century, that would be There. <laughs> turn with me to the second chapter. Uh, somebody read the second verse. Works and labor, and patience, and thou... not I'm going to interrupt you. Read the nineteenth verse. Okay. We're going to do this a bunch. Okay. I know thy works and charity. Read the twenty-third verse. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and heart, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Mm. Read three one. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest. How about 3 2? Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Mm. How about 3 8? I know thy works. Behold, I have set Wow, forth. how about 3.15? <laughs> I know thy works. How about that? Seven churches. Seven times. He said, I know thy works. What did Boaz notice about Ruth? Her works. What did her works speak about her? Her care, her love, her trust in Naomi which symbolized her care, her love, and her trust for the God of Naomi. Hmm. How about this? How, how about this one? I promise we got like two Scriptures left. Revelation 14, verse 13. Read it in the NIV for me. Not that I don't love the King James. Blessed the dead who in the now Keep going. Keep going. Yes, said the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. They will rest from their labor and what will happen? Their deeds will follow follow them. Something speaks for you even after you are dead and it is your deeds. deeds. What we do in this life matters. I don't want you to appear before the Lord empty-handed. So let us read Revelation 19 together and perhaps this will make sense. 19, verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder and shouting. Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Before we read any more, who made her ready? She made herself ready because every Jewish bride from the moment she was engaged from the moment she drank of that cup of wine that symbolized engagement she waited for the day that her groom would come and get her and they would rejoice in the father's house together and while she waited he built onto the royal dwelling and she made something it was the bride's job to make her own wedding dress She was making a dress so that she would be beautiful when He came at a day or an hour. She did not expect at the blowing of a trumpet and carried her on His shoulders with His friends into the presence of God. Let's read the next verse. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. How was linen given to her, but she made herself ready? Ephesians 2.8 says, or really 2.10, says that God prepared good work for you to do in advance. This is Him providing you with linen to make your wedding dress so that when you stand before Him, you are not empty-handed. You can say, here I am. And I'm beautiful because you have made me like you. When you spoke, I did it. When you said feed the hungry, I did. When you said give, it's a blessing. I did it. I wanted to be like my husband. You demonstrated. I reciprocated. I had a theophany. A day in which you spoke to me and it fundamentally changed me. I was Ruth the Moabitess that you grafted into your presence. And like David, I have served your purpose in my generation. And now has come the time you can take me to be with you. And then just like we sang in Revelation 5, we can say, worthy, worthy is the Lamb God Almighty. He has purchased for Himself men from every nation and you will be properly adorned. Throw away your commentaries that tell you that when the wedding invitations went out and people showed up and didn't have their garments, that this was some strange or weird custom and explain it away. They got the invitation they responded by accepting the invitation but not doing anything with it and so God did not find them worthy to participate in the peace. The separation of the sheep and goats is based on whether or not you were going to be adorned in the righteous acts He prepared for you. Obedience is not optional. We rehearse this every year at Shavuot. We ask for it. And the day of Pentecost that so fundamentally changed the world, was to provide for you the power to make your wedding dress. This is why, first and foremost, the baptism of the Holy Ghost is the power of witness. Dynamite power. Secondly, it's everything else. I want to invite you today to get an address making business with me. I never saw myself as much of a tailor. But I desperately don't want to be found naked when the King of Kings returns. Amen. I want to have some fruit in this tree. Y'all stand to your feet. We'll pray. Many of the names that I said today were foreign to you. And if I'd read from Bereshith, Shemoth, Weyibra, or Gavirin. You might not recognize them. And yet it is the first five books that God gave mankind. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They all tell the exact same beautiful story. That in the beginning, God wrote down the names of everyone enslaved. He called out to them while they were in the middle of a desert. And he gave them His Word. This is the rough definition of each of those Hebrew names of the first five books of the Torah. This much is indisputable. What is still up for dispute is what you will do with His words. Will you make a dress? Will you have something to show on that day? Or will you just be entertained? I believe God brought you here because you have the potential to make me proud. I can look in some of your eyes and see that you were set apart from the earth. That the world has tried to enslave you since the beginning. But the Lord knew your name and has called you out. That you have found yourself in the middle of a dry and dead place. I'm giving you His word and saying, if you will follow me, there will be life. I'm not in the begging business, but I beg of you not to be stiff not to receive more of the same treatment that you have become accustomed to, but know what it is to be a very cherished brother and the hasn't He is has willing to forgive all says now you must live differently because you're going to wear my name. We're going to pray. I'm going to ask you to do something that we never do in this church. If you need to take a new step. Maybe you took it three weeks ago and it didn't take. But this is your moment. And the balcony is it wisdom walk to the altar and yes, ask for now. you don't need some song to drive touch your words you don't need a bunch of people around you so that you don't feel bad or insecure the place the gospel starts is with the fundamental recognition life must change if that's you No place for a coward.